From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The STAR program is designed to help people in the midst of a crisis without involving Denver police officers. Now, thousands of calls later, a new study suggests it's working. When you send the right responders, the outcomes can just be so much more beneficial for that person. We'll talk with a woman who's worked as a first responder and now oversees the program and find out what's next. Then, Russia's war in Ukraine is half a world away, but the Colorado National Guard ended up on the war's doorstep this spring, taking part in military training near Russia's western border. The amount of rockets allocated to everything going on in these exercises, there are more here on this island than the rest of Europe combined. A special Colorado In-Depth report from CPR's Caitlin Kim. Hi, I'm Dan Brooks, and I donated my car to CPR. The car I donated was a 1996 Ford Explorer that my son had been driving. When he went off to college, he didn't need the car, and it was old enough and duct taped together enough that the rest of us in the family didn't feel safe driving it, and it was time to give it to a good cause. All I had to do was fill out a form online. Didn't matter if the side door didn't open or the bumper was falling off. Somebody gave me a call, and they came and picked it up. Donate your car. It's easy at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. The STAR program has been underway in Denver for two years now. STAR stands for Support Team Assistance Response. The program sends unarmed, trained health experts instead of police officers to certain low-risk 911 calls. It's been praised for helping deliver health care and resources to those who need it instead of arresting them or failing to connect them to much-needed support. And a new study finds it's helped reduce low-level crime and cut the cost of answering certain calls. Carly Ceylon is a licensed clinical social worker. She responded to many calls in the STAR program van during its six-month pilot phase. Now she serves as the operations manager. Carly, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you. Appreciate it. Can you share a story of someone who was helped by the STAR program, someone who might have otherwise been arrested or incarcerated? Well, I I have a gentleman that comes to mind early on in the pilot. We were called to do a welfare check down on the 16th Street Mall. A third-party caller had called in and said that there was a gentleman who appeared to be down there in a broken wheelchair and was not doing well and having trouble getting around. So they wanted someone to go check on him. So we arrived and we talked to the gentleman and his wheelchair was in fact broken and he wasn't able to, to get around where he needed to go that day. And speaking with him, he mentioned that he was a veteran who had fallen out of connection with his VA treatment team. This was during the pandemic, and, and so many folks who don't didn't have access to technology and cell phones had difficulty um, keeping in touch with those services. So I have a really good contact at the VA, who I owe a lot of favors to probably, and I gave him a call, and I said, hey, I have, you know, this gentleman here, and he says that he was connected with you guys but hasn't been in touch. 
And my contact at the VA knew exactly who he was and said, we've actually been looking for him for about three months. We have a housing opportunity for him. We have all these services and we just haven't been able to find him. Can you give him a ride up to the VA medical center in Aurora and we'll take it from there. We'll get him medically cleared and address any any other issues he's having and make sure that he's reconnected with his treatment team. So that's what we did. And um I don't think that, you know, that gentleman wouldn't have been arrested. Officers probably would have tried to help him, but the officers probably wouldn't have had that contact at the VA to directly call and and get that sort of streamlined process to getting this gentleman reconnected. So um, I, I think that's one example that really shows that when you send the right responders, the outcomes can just be so much more beneficial for that person. So a lot of the calls are related to mental health poverty, homelessness, substance abuse. Tell us a little bit about how it works. Absolutely. So a call comes in to the 911 center, either through 911 or the police non-emergency line. And it's pretty surprising what folks will call in for. Uh, They don't have access to food. They don't have shelter for that night. They don't have a ride somewhere. And I don't think that's what people think of when when you typically think of a 911 call. But but these are our reasons why our community is calling. And we've traditionally had these three response pathways of police, fire, or ambulance to these calls, and that's who we've sent, even though they're really maybe not the right fit for these situations. So if that call comes into Denver 911, our civilian call takers are trained to screen the call for presence of a weapon, risk, injury, um, something that would warrant a more emergent response. And if all of the details of that call are appropriate for STAR, they'll flag the call in our system as STAR appropriate, and that tells our civilian dispatchers to send the STAR van versus police. And then our teams, which are a well-power clinician and a Denver Health paramedic, will go out and respond to that person, take all the time that we need to figure out what's going on with them that day, support them, really allow them to be in the driver's seat of what's going to make their situation better, and then do our best to try to execute that for them. So you all have answered more than 4,000 calls that would have otherwise gone to the police department or other uh first responders? I checked the data earlier this week, and we're just shy of 5,000, actually, since we rolled out the pilot June 1st of 2020. So you have been very hands-on. You were there on the front lines for this six-month pilot period. What was it like being on the Star Van? It it was great. It was such a wonderful experience. I worked, yeah, Throughout the pilot, it was also during the height of the pandemic, you know, which was an interesting experience. And a lot of folks have asked me, you know, isn't that scary? I mean, you know, we didn't have vaccines at that point and there were still a lot of unknowns with COVID. But truthfully, it felt really good to be out in the community serving the most vulnerable during a time that was so uncertain. And I think during a time where they needed it more than ever, um, it was It was really rewarding. We saw a lot of great outcomes from our contacts during that pilot period. And folks just said to us over and over again, this feels really comfortable. I can't believe a program like this exists in Denver. Um, You guys are great. You know, just a lot of positive feedback. And and we helped a lot of folks during that initial six-month period. And when you think about the period, the initial period of COVID in particular, it was a lot of residual stress, a lot of mental health challenges 
for so many during that time. As you mentioned, there's so many unknowns at that time. So I could imagine it was sort of a comfort to know that there was some support out there. I think it was. And we responded to a number of calls where folks had called in because they were experiencing low-level depression and anxiety due to that lockdown period and social isolation. And our whole world looked different. We were able to go out in person, you know, safely taking all the necessary precautions and really giving those folks that that one on one contact that they needed during that time. When do most of the calls tend to come in? Our highest call volume time is actually Monday through Friday business hours. Most folks think that it would be nights and weekends, um, but it's those weekday business hours. We're responding to calls like trespass calls, welfare checks. You know, this is when businesses are trying to open up and there may be an unhoused individual sleeping in their doorway or in their alley. And now we can send start of that and we can uh, support them and offer them a day shelter, food, water, um, you know, a clean pair of socks. And and I think that interaction feels a lot more comfortable to folks and a lot more supportive. You mentioned uh, the veteran in a wheelchair who needed assistance. And um, a lot of people would say that the success of the STAR program is going to be measured by resolving crises and connecting people to services. Is that typical of the program to follow up on these calls after they're answered? So we've been lucky enough that our co-responder team here in Denver, which has been in existence since 2016, that's our program that pairs a licensed mental health clinician with the Denver police officer, has been so well received and so successful that they now have a team of case managers working with them. And we've been able to tap into those resources and send those co-responder case managers where, you know, our star folks may need some follow-up or additional contact. My hope, and, you know, I'm very optimistic about this, is that we will also become so large with STAR that we will have a team of case managers to do that follow-up for for individuals as well. This program began in June of 2020. At that time, of course, the nation was in a lot of uh, a state that we call a racial reckoning. And uh, also there was a lot of demonstrations in relation to the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis at the hands of some police officers there. And there were lots of calls for change in how law enforcement is carried out. Would you say this program is directly or indirectly a response to that? You know, we had been working on developing the STAR pilot since May of 2019. That was when we did our initial site visit out to Eugene to visit the CAHOOTS program, who we're modeled after. And I'm really proud of the fact that the city of Denver, the Denver Police Department, all of the stakeholders that are involved in this program saw the value in this before the public pressure to do so. So I think it was really a feather in our cap at that time, you know, as there was so much unrest going on to be able to say, hey, we have this solution and this isn't a new solution to us. We've been investing in programs that place social workers with police, that place social workers responding to 911 calls for a number of years. So I think it was really what the community was was asking for at that time. And it felt really good to be at the point of of delivery and not just starting to think about these programs at that time. Let's talk more about this study. It's a Stanford University study that reviewed the first six months of the program. What did they find? 
they found some really encouraging data. Um, you know, the data that they found um, that, you know, there's been a crime reduction and, and the cost savings. I mean, I think this just shows that our program is working. And, and we've known that. And it's really, really encouraging to be able to have data backing that up and to be able to say that the program that we developed is effective. What about challenges? What kind of challenges have you all faced with delivering this program? Yeah, I think, um, you know, the initial challenge of COVID, you know, how we were going to remain safe, you know, keep the responders uh, healthy in the community those those first six months, how we were going to keep the people we were serving healthy was a big challenge and, and something that we really prioritized and took very seriously. Um, you know, I think also figuring out how this program was going to be structured and where it was going to be housed. There's a lot of different philosophical perspectives on who should be doing this work, whether it should be uh, affiliated with the police department or the city or none of the above. Um, And we've navigated a lot of those difficult conversations throughout the years and I think landed on a model that works for Denver. How did it come about in Denver? Like what was the backstory on how you all thought to look into this program and consider it. Yeah. So it was a kind of serendipitous event, actually. So I mentioned we've been running the co-responder program here in Denver since 2016. And through years of running that program, which sends clinicians and police officers together to calls, it really became apparent that we needed to create additional options for response um, to respond to those calls that are public health in nature, poverty related, where there isn't a need for that traditional police response. Um, We recognize that there were a, a large number of calls coming into the system that could be handled by civilians and that we'd be comfortable going to on our own. So we started thinking about that. Uh, I actually did a podcast for for CityCast Denver, and someone in the crowd asked me if I had ever heard of the CAHOOTS model. And I hadn't. And, you know, like any diligent clinician, I went home and did some online research and found that CAHOOTS has been running a model exactly like this for over 30 years. So I started doing a little bit of digging. And then also at the same time, there were a group of community advocates who were aware of CAHOOTS who were starting to have conversations with the Denver Police Department about wanting a program like this in Denver. So that's sort of what led to that site visit in May of 2019, where we went out to Eugene and and CAHOOTS was so gracious and allowed us to ride along with them and really teach us what this program looked like. And and at that point, we came back, um, myself, the Denver Police Department, Denver Health Paramedics, Wellpower, community advocates, people with lived experience, got together and started working on what this model would look like in a larger metro area. And uh, fast forward to June 1st of 2020, we worked our first shift. Wow. Given the success of the launch, how do you envision the program evolving? I think we are going to see further star expansion. By the end of the summer, we should be up to five units running seven days a week between 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. I want to see us go to overnights. We know that although 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. are our high call volume times, we want to be able to provide that support to the city all the time um, and and not have uh, a different set of responses for different times a day. So I think that's probably coming down the pike. Um, I would actually love to see 
star dispatched by its own dispatchers eventually once once we could get there. So these are kind of my pipe dreams. But I think with the momentum we have behind the program, um, we're going to see even greater success and an even greater capacity. You've been on both sides of this program. You've been answering the calls on the front lines, as some people would say, but you are now the operations manager. How does that inform what you think about the program? Yeah, I, I loved working the street. Um, I, I miss it a little bit, full disclosure. Um, I, I love that work. And, um, you know, it's it's some of my favorite my favorite interactions in this uh, industry that I'm in, I guess, are, is getting out there and having one-on-one contact with people. But I see my current position as a way to impact bigger change. Now I can look at 911 policies. Now I can look at what calls stars responding to. Are there calls that we could be responding to that we aren't currently? And how do we get there? So even though I may not be out there on the front lines anymore, and that that stings a little some days. Uh, I think having a clinician that's in charge of the 911 operations is is important to inform that widespread change and and help to sort of catalyze the progress that where Denver wants to be on the cutting edge of this type of work. Is it fair to say that the Denver Police Department is a partner with the STAR program? Yes, absolutely. And an important partner. Um, These are calls that Denver police have responded to historically. They were the first ones to say, we are absolutely happy to let STAR go to these calls and try to help people versus continuing to do the traditional response that we've been doing for for decades and decades. Um, While the majority, the overwhelming majority of calls that STAR responds to are dispatched through 911 communications, there are times when officers show up on scene first, recognize that they aren't necessarily the right response for the situation that they're encountering on that scene, and ask for STAR to come and take over that call. And then the police can leave and STAR can, um, you know, support that person and and provide whatever services they need. So I think they're they're an integral partner. And STAR is also a force multiplier for our police department so that they can focus on public safety and enforcing laws and crime and the things that they, you know, should be focusing on. While STAR takes all of these things that have sort of historically been put on their plate because because of a lack of a better option, and reroutes it to a more appropriate team. Have any other law enforcement agencies reached out expressing interest in this program? Lots of other law enforcement agencies and uh, cities and groups from across the country have uh, reached out. Even we had a group in uh, in Europe that reached out to do a meeting about STAR, and that's a big part of my job is providing that consultation and that information, just like CAHOOTS did for us so many years ago, so that other areas can replicate this model. What do you want people to know about this program? I think the most important thing that I'd like people to know about STAR is that our goal is to send the right response to folks when they're in crisis. We are really focused on supporting people in those tough moments and making sure that they have access to the appropriate professionals and the appropriate resources that can help them stay out of crisis and and really live the best life that they want to live. And and we're happy to do it. And and, uh, it's been successful so far. Carly, thanks for joining us on Colorado Matters. Thank you. 
Carly Ceylon is a licensed clinical social worker who oversees operations for the Denver Star Program. Meantime, for the first time in Colorado, data shows where people in state prisons lived before they were incarcerated. The numbers show some big disparities. CPR's Allison Sherry takes a closer look. The entire city of Denver has the same district attorney and the same police department. Yet new data from the Prison Policy Institute shows there are big differences in the numbers of people who go to state prison depending on the neighborhood. For example, in Sun Valley, west of Interstate 25, residents are 20 times more likely to go to prison than in West Washington Park, a more affluent neighborhood east of the interstate. What it shows us is that we do need to be putting more resources up front into those neighborhoods. That's Denver District Attorney Beth McCann, who says she does not think the numbers reflect any prosecutorial racial bias in her systems. But I'm not going to sit here and say that that never happens. Cases are handled differently at different times by different people. Criminal justice reform activists tell a slightly different story. They say research shows prosecutors, often within the same office, offer better plea deals to white defendants. They also more readily offer diversion programs out of the criminal justice system to men or white defendants compared to people of color. Denver City Councilwoman Candy Sidabaka represents Elyria Swansea, which had a much higher incarceration rate than other neighborhoods. I would be curious to see how many of those folks were represented by a public defender. It's really the luck of the draw when you can't afford an an attorney. Taj Ashahid agrees that much of this starts once a case hits the court system. Ashahid works at the Second Chance Center and helps people transition out of prison and into regular life. He has served prison time and got firsthand experience on how prosecutors work. When I see numbers like this where it's like it's clear that in this particular section of the city, you have people of color and and working class and, or poor just going to jail and going to prison. And, and it's it starts at the DA's office. Researchers argue that the data, even with all the disconcerting disparities across the state, is important because it shows that everyone's place of origin, where they live, is a major factor in where they go. I'm Allison Sherry, CPR News. There's more data and maps based on the numbers at CPR.org. When we come back, a special report on the Colorado National Guard's mission to the western border of Russia. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. ¿Quién somos nosotras? Who are we? During our lunch break, we'd be sitting outside, like, peeling mangoes and eating them fresh. And then I'd go inside to, like, dance these Afro-Brazilian, Afro-Caribbean-style movements. I think that's when I most felt myself. I'm May Ortega, and CPR's new podcast is all about being Latinx, Hispanic, Chicana, and the beautiful things that make us who we are. Look for Quien Are We everywhere you listen. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Colorado National Guard troops went to Europe this spring to take part in military exercises with allies. It was part of a years-long training partnership, but the timing of the trip took on heightened importance. CPR's Washington, D.C.-based reporter Caitlin Kim takes us to Estonia, where she embedded with troops who found themselves on the edge of history as a war rages in Europe. Most people know the National Guard as the weekend warrior, 
a state-based military force used by governors to help out in times of crisis. And members of the Colorado National Guard have been helping with testing people for COVID-19 in Weld County. Governor Polis gives the verbal go-ahead to mobilize the National Guard and the state's fight against ongoing wildfires. But the Colorado National Guard has another equally important mission. It serves as a reserve force for the U.S. military. We're a force multiplier. We help our citizens in Colorado when we were called upon. Blizzards, fires, uh, tornadoes, uh, name it. But we also get to do the federal mission, which is coming here. Here is the small Baltic country of Estonia, population 1.3 million. This spring, just weeks after Russia invaded Ukraine, Colorado National Guard troops found themselves on the edge of the conflict. The Colorado Guard has been in conflict situations before. It sent units to Iraq and Afghanistan. But it's not something they expect when it comes to training or exercises like these that have been planned since last summer. And yet, that's the situation they found themselves in when they and other U.S. military units spent much of May training across Eastern Europe, including in Estonia. Tree line on west and southwest surrounding. Power lines to zero, zero meters running Colorado is one of six states whose Army or Air National Guard came here to train side-by-side side with allies. They're long-standing exercises that actually started after Russia invaded Crimea in 2014. But as the day approached when they'd ship off to Estonia this spring, the way they saw the work they came here to do changed with Russia's attack on Ukraine. This radar station took a direct hit. Russia is picking off Ukraine's military facilities one after another, but Ukrainian troops are fighting back. The exercises are called Defender Europe and Swift Response. They'd put U.S. and partner military units in Poland and the Baltic nations of Latvia, Lithuania, and here in Estonia, sometimes just a few hundred miles from where the fighting was taking place. Would Russia take that as provocation? Would it react badly if U.S. and allied forces were conducting exercises in countries along its border after it had just invaded another country and gotten the wrath of most of the rest of the world? And would there be a possibility Guard members could get caught up if Russia decided to get aggressive towards its other neighbors? After getting out of two long-term wars, no one is eager to see U.S. forces involved in another war. This is Colorado In-Depth, a podcast with special reporting from CPR News. I'm Caitlin Kim. Colonel Chris McKee remembers a meeting he had with his troops just weeks before they planned to go to Eastern Europe. I remember in March, you know, the first, you know, drill where all of our soldiers came back in. McKee commands the 169th Field Artillery Brigade of the Colorado Army National Guard. You know, everybody very concerned about where we're going. And really the message was like, you think you're worried. What if you were, what if you were Estonian? What message would it send to our partners if we said, oh, you know, things in the world are tough right now, we're not coming. McKee lives in Greeley and originally joined the Guard to pay for school. He has stayed in the Colorado Army National Guard for over 30 years, in part because he loves the teamwork and the camaraderie. He's also deployed to Afghanistan as part of a NATO team, so he knows the importance of the military alliance and what it's like to be in a war. In March, he thought he could reassure people on edge about coming to Eastern Europe during the war in Ukraine, so he held a town hall to address any worries his people had. As they're standing there in a formation, I'm like, okay, everybody fall out, everybody get comfortable, stand around, and literally got up on some steps and said, you know, what are your concerns? Get three or four hands. What about this? What about this? What if they invade? I'm like, okay. 
He answered the questions. He explained how NATO works, what it means for the U.S. and other members like Estonia. I really need my soldier to understand and perform. But literally explaining, you know, it's, it's an attack on one is a big deal. That is different than attacking a single sovereign state that, that doesn't have any mutual aid agreements. That single sovereign state without mutual aid? That's Ukraine. It's not part of NATO. It doesn't have that same security agreement that Estonia and other NATO allies have with one another. So McKee talked with his troops about Article 5, which essentially means an attack on one is an attack on all. It's an ironclad agreement that protects the U.S. and all NATO members. And McKee told his troops they had a part to play in keeping it strong. But it wasn't just Guard members who expressed concerns in those early days. Lieutenant Colonel Paul Canning is an A-10 pilot with the 175th Operations Group of the Maryland Air National Guard, and he's been on nine combat deployments. Canning says his wife hadn't been too concerned about those, but going for this exercise? Literally, she's like, I'm more nervous for you going TDY to the Baltics on this trip than I were any other times in the Middle East, in Asia, or wherever. I think I think there is just this, there's this, obviously with, with the, the conflict going on in Ukraine, like, like there is a heightened awareness that this is something that most people didn't think they would see. Americans may not have ever thought a war was possible again in Europe, but countries in the east, the countries that border Russia, have a well-honed dread of Russia. From the annexation of Crimea to the political, economic, and yes, sometimes military pressure it continues to exert on eastern European countries that aren't part of any western alliance. That apprehension, that sense of foreboding, is the backdrop as the Colorado National Guard is here in the spring of 2022. The exercises the Guard are participating in could be one key thing preventing or preparing Estonia for what some in this country would say is their worst fear. Walking around Tallinn, Estonia's capital this spring, you could see signs of support for Ukraine everywhere. The Estonian and Ukrainian flags hung side by side in a prominent place in Freedom Square. People hung signs condemning Russia's attack all along a barricade outside the Russian embassy. For many Estonians, Russia's attack on Ukraine is not just a reminder of the past. It's a reminder that this could be their future. Here in Estonia or in other Baltic countries, we weren't really surprised or shocked because we knew it. In a, in a very fundamental way, we know that this is something that might happen. That's Karen Jagodin, director of the Museum of Occupations and Freedom. The museum encourages people to understand what it calls the fragility of freedom. That theme resonates in these times. She says occupation and freedom are two sides of the same coin. You can't talk about occupations without freedom because occupations is the lack of freedom. And you can't talk about freedom if you don't talk about what it means to not have freedom. Jagodin was nine when Estonia regained its independence from the Soviet Union in 1991. She says her childhood was the Soviet Union. She remembers the long lines at shops and empty shelves and quotas for basics like bread, flour or milk. It was normal back then and not just in Estonia. It's definitely something that connects me with uh, all of the fo former Soviet Republic countries' generation because we share something that was so uh, similar to all of us. With the war in Ukraine, she says museum visitors, especially older ones, talk about how the younger generation of Estonians have taken freedom for granted, leaving the Soviet Union to the dustbin of history. And now these older Estonians also tell her they think they might have made a mistake 
in not talking more about the past. When I brought up my kids who were born in free Estonia, I thought that they will never have to see uh, history the way we have seen it. And now I understand that I have actually kept away something from them that is crucial for them to understand what is going on right now in the world. In other words, the past hasn't stayed in the past. This is why Estonians have been staunch supporters of Ukraine and why even civilians here are working to support the Ukrainian cause. In one corner of the museum, a woman with short gray hair and a black shawl wrapped around her neck is taking pieces of green, brown and black cloth and making little cuts along the sides. Two other women are tying these scraps onto an old fishing net in random shapes, trying to mimic mother nature. Straight lines are uh, easier to detect from, from the air, okay. so it has to look as, uh, as natural. That's Anna Rikopol. She's part of a volunteer team making DIY camouflage nets for the Ukrainian army. The Russian border is just a three and a half hour drive east of Tallinn. So Kopol says when Russia invaded Ukraine, it scared her. This is not only about Estonia and it's not only about Ukraine. It's about the security of uh, whole Europe. It's about uh, the security of, uh, of the world, I would say. It's the larger geopolitics that has brought her to this corner, tying pieces of cloth to a net. A victory for Ukraine is not just a victory for freedom. It possibly stops Russia from trying this again somewhere else. Though she knows Estonia is in a better position than Ukraine, thanks to military exercises like the one I came here to see with the Colorado National Guard, like the other Baltic countries, after Estonia's independence from the Soviet Union, it quickly looked west to NATO and the European Union, becoming members of both in 2004. So Kopol knows if Russia invades here, those alliances will be tested. If NATO doesn't defend an ally, ally, then that means NATO is not, not existing anymore. And I think as the most, uh, uh, like the strongest uh, defense alliance in the world, I think NATO will do everything to win. That's good for Kopol and her fellow Estonians, but it also explains why Guard members and their families could have had some trepidations about doing these long-standing military exercises at this exact moment. Inside a conference room at a local Estonian military headquarters, McKee, the colonel from Greeley, says whatever concerns his Colorado National Guard troops had in early March dissipated before they arrived. Everybody's embraced coming here like the, that trepidation is gone. In fact, 24-year-old Maxwell Batanian from Denver says he's excited and his parents weren't worried at all. He's one of those weekend warriors. His day job is in civil engineering. I've always wanted to come to the Baltics region, so. Do you think the first time you come here with the guard? Uh, I did not. My, I had plans to come here before COVID and uh, this is not part of the plan for a first time trip, but I'm glad I'm here now. I get why he's glad. It's the spring. The sun is out early and doesn't set until well after 10. He and the others have gotten to see some tourist sites on their downtime. Even McKee, an avid fisherman, squeezed in a couple of hours to throw out a line. And I guess this is where I should tell you, I actually lived in Estonia when I worked at the State Department. Flat woodlands, lakes and bogs dot the countryside. It's a pretty serene place, but the guard members are here for some serious work.
This is not my first military exercise rodeo. I went to a few when I worked for the State Department. I remember going to one in the winter, and it involved wearing Kevlar over my long, puffy winter coat and a helmet over my wool hat. I look like a combat-ready Stay Puff Marshmallow Man. So I had no complaints. This spring, standing along the northern coast of Sarama, Estonia's largest island, under a cloudless sky with a nice breeze, and neither did anyone else. Good hey, good morning. How are you? Good to see you. Yes. So. Um is it similar to Colorado? <laughs> <laughs> no. That's Brigadier General Riho Utegi again, commander of the Estonian Defense League. Think of it like Estonia's National Guard. And Brigadier General Laura Clellan, the head of the Colorado National Guard. Using binoculars, they spot some eagles perched on the rocks among the seagulls lazily floating on the Baltic Sea. What they're really doing, though, is waiting. Waiting for the exercise to begin. One where they think through how Estonia, the U.S. and NATO allies, would defend Sarama if an unnamed adversary invaded. The answer? Well, in this scenario, shoot a lot of rockets. The HIMAR launchers look kind of like small, lean dump trucks. But when the truck bed tilts up, instead of things falling out, rockets shoot up. McKee is excited. The amount of rockets allocated to everything going on in these exercises, there are more here on this island than the rest, the rest of Europe combined. <laughs> so this exercise wins in rockets. The Army National Guard led dozens of these rocket shooting exercises during this trip. While the flashes and bangs may dazzle the military crowd, what's really being tested is what you can't see, how well U.S. and Estonian teams and systems work together. Major Joe Bryant explains a Colorado National Guard soldier is embedded with Estonian command located about 200 miles away. You know, the rockets are going to fly, we know that. But what was most important today was it originated in the Estonian command, they came to our headquarters and came to launcher. Bryant is from Monument, Colorado, and he's been with the 169 for about 16 months. For him, it's not about the shooting. He knows they do that well. The important thing is our our NATO partners have asked us to do a specific thing, and them learning is our key task. So our success is based off of their success. Also critical to their success is communication. That's something Colorado Guardsman Ryan King knows well. He took part in the same exercises when he was part of the active duty army a couple of years ago. In fact, he spent a year here in the Baltics, most of it in Lithuania. I think the biggest piece, the most important part of these exercises is working with our with these friendly nations and getting to learn how to communicate better with them and perform operations together with them. The, that, big, that big piece there is the most important because it's if you try to go into that without any prior experience or, or information to go on, then it'd be quite a mess. Communication and success improves through these exercises and through long-standing partnerships. The Guard has a program called, blandly enough, the State Partnership Program. Colorado's partners are Jordan and Slovenia, which doesn't really help here. But Colorado is here with troops from other U.S. states. Maryland is partners with Estonia. And, well, I'll let McKee tell you the rest. So we have a unit, two cannon units in, in uh, Michigan and Pennsylvania that are both uh, state partnership pr partners with Latvia and Lithuania. So. They have existing training relationships with those two countries. Lieutenant Colonel Ashkan Anga, who's from Boulder and is with the Colorado Guard, has worked on this program. He explains that unlike active duty units, which rotate out every few years, Guard members often stay in units for a really long time. 
So the same people will come back to a partner country or see partner allies when they come to the States for training. Anga says they become like family. We know a lot of them. They know, they know us. We're very comfortable with each other. We know, we know their capabilities. They know us. And, and so when we're called upon, we can actually go execute and jump right into the mission uh, without having to break the barriers. Anga hasn't done much work in the Baltics, but even in the short amount of time he's been here, he feels like the Guard members and the Estonian military have not just worked on interoperability, but have also built friendships. That's good because these type of exercises prepare both militaries for any action. And they also send messages of reassurance. Maryland's Canning says one exercise they've been doing here is Agile Combat Employment, or ACE operations. Where we take a group of uh, airplanes and some personnel and we pick them up and we move them to a spot and we operate for a duration and then we close it up, pick it up, move it again. Believe it or not, that last part, the picking up and moving and getting back to work over and over and over again, is reassuring to NATO allies in this part of the world. Because being able to respond quickly, say in three weeks versus three months, could make a big difference. The other message is deterrence. I think it, it helps to reassure the state partners, but the fact that we show whomever might be watching that we can do this, uh, probably better than anybody else, I think acts as a natural deterrent uh, for whoever might be, uh, be interested. Whoever is the country that many are reluctant to mention by name here, Russia. Look, no one wants to poke the Russian bear, but people in this part of the world are eager for reassurance. Estonian Defense League's General Utegi explains. It also um, gives some understanding for population and people that, that we are really protected and uh, our allies are coming and uh, support us if we have any kind of situation. Utegi thinks Ukraine has done a solid job in defending against Russian attacks, but they don't have the resources to counterattack and take back occupied areas. That's something he thinks would be similar if Estonia were ever invaded. What uh, we hope that uh, NATO forces and our allies will do, we can protect our country, but uh, we have to release it after that. And uh, it's a situation where we, have, uh, we need help. Hence the rockets, the practice moving U.S. and allied military around quickly, and even an exercise U.S. Marines did with Estonians a few days earlier. And it's not just the security of an ally or geopolitics at play. Colorado's McKee says these exercises are also important for America's national security. Our national defense strategy for the country, you know, is the national military strategy, the defense strategy is is overlappingly built on integration of allies as an extension of our, you know, national power. The the development and the relationships that we build with partners is is paramount to national defense. As another person explained it, the U.S. has friends and allies, while countries like Russia or China have clients. Back at the Museum of Occupations and Freedom, Karen Yagodin has seen how both sides work or don't. She says friendships alleviate a lot of local anxiety. If we would be completely on our own, uh, I think it would be horrifying. Yes, it would be terrifying. So, so of course, it definitely brings some security, uh, some kind of knowledge that we are not on our own. As for McKee, exercises like this boil down to one thing. We have partners. We're trying to become better partners. He says he and the Colorado National Guard learn as much from their partners as the partners learn from them. 
NATO allies hope all these preparations pay off, that it does reassure allies that they have their back, that they do deter any potential adversary, and that everyone avoids another war. A lot of Colorado students are behind in reading and math. Pandemic interruptions, isolation, and online instruction have slowed the typical pace of learning. A partnership between a local foundation and the Eagle County School District is helping students make academic gains this summer. It's a district where more than half are students of color, more than a third are English language learners. CPR's education reporter, Jenny Brundine, takes us to this unique summer camp. Three boys are struggling through a math problem. It must be smaller because it's one box. They're trying to figure out the area of a circle, but they've forgotten, or don't know yet, there's a formula. Remember? Pi, that funky number, 3.14, times... The radius. Never fear, radius. the summer teacher is here. Paul Witt is an experienced math teacher. Perfect. Three points. So for 10 days, or 20 if they sign up for two summer sessions, students in several mountain communities are brushing up on skills lost during the pandemic and learning new ones. School officials say literacy suffered the most during the pandemic. They're seeing the biggest impacts on current second and third graders. But 10-year-old Mariana Gonzalez-Diaz says... I'm reading... I like to read, but, like, I get really struggled with math because I'm like, I don't get these stuffs. But students who need additional one-on-one support can get it at this camp, says Melissa Rewald-Duan, a district assistant superintendent. Last year, because of COVID, we have kids that have huge deficits in their learning, and so we wanted to make sure that we could get as many students as possible. They got 600 kids to sign up. She credits the district's partner, Youth Power 365, an education initiative of the Vail Valley Foundation. The nonprofit is well-known in the community. It runs preschool and after-school programs, internships. So there's a ton of trust with the families. And so sometimes when the families are afraid of like an institution, possibly like some of our families that may have immigration and other sorts of concerns, they're not afraid to engage with the nonprofit. Youth Power 365 reached out to families personally if the school couldn't. They targeted students who'd struggled. 65% at the camps qualify for a free or reduced price lunch. This year, the district used federal COVID funds to hire reading and math specialists for one on one support. What does he put? These boys are working on vowel sounds, sight words, making predictions, basically developing into more fluent readers. Good reading. All right, turn the page. Teacher Amanda Ballantyne says summer camp is more than stopping the summer slide. They're trying to expose the kids to art, language. What can we do to make it fun and make school enjoyable? And, you know, I brought my own books from home to be like, these are my favorite to read. Let's just foster a love of learning and reading. This year, the summer school attracted much more experienced teachers like Ballantyne. One reason? Teacher pay was bumped to $40 an hour. Youth Power 365 pays three quarters of it, the district the rest. But there were other reasons Ballantyne took the summer gig. I just love to work through the summer. Like, it's the same as the kids. If you don't keep it up, you kind of, like, forget about it. (laughs) The same with seven-year-old Jimena Carillo. She's already thinking about how summer school will help her next year in second grade. I think it'll help me concentrate. Back. Back. 
Paciencia. Jimena, who's practicing reading in English and Spanish, has her own reasons for attending summer school. Because I didn't want my reading to go down. Esos no son juguetes. Her second grade literacy teacher, Saira Hernandez, says the class size of 13. It's a dream. <laughs> and the more imaginative summer curriculum makes it easier to have an impact. Her students will start second grade next year. Some of them are still like at the end of kindergarten, maybe at the beginning of first grade. Some of them, you could tell that they were exposed to books at home, but the majority, not much. Fourth and fifth grade math teacher Paul Witt has noticed another pandemic impact. Learning at home, he says, it was easy for kids to say, I can't do it. Whereas in the classroom, there's both peer pressure and you know, some teacher pressure to keep working and keep trying. I did it! You did? Yes! Let me see. In math class, this boy is trying the old joining nine dots with four straight lines without lifting the pen problem. He's been trying since the start of summer camp. You're so close. <laughs> Almost. He missed one dot and vows to keep trying at home. I'm Jenny Brendeen, CPR News. Thanks for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.